to Self-Care with Dr. Sarah, and I'm Sarah R. And I'm Sarah B. And today we're going to talk about academic jealousy. Yes, uh, so gentle listeners, um, thank you for your patience. It's been a while since we recorded an episode. It has. And uh, I visited Sarah R. recently in Scotland. And we were planning to record this then, and we didn't. Yes. But now I'm here in Boston. And um, this came up, uh, the topic of jealousy at least came up while we were there. Yes. Um, and so that kind of inspired us to record this particular episode about this topic. So in the context of academic jealousy, what I think about when I think about that is in particular feelings of insecurity um, and maybe even destructive feelings of insecurity around other people achieving things when you yourself are wanting to achieve things. Mm -hmm. So um, plenty of complicated feelings there. I think I maybe suffer from it a bit more than Sarah R. So it might be Sarah R. offering me more guidance this episode instead of... I don't know if I have anything <laughs> positive you know, to say, but I think it is hard. I mean, I think we all suffer from jealousy. And then how it portrays itself in our lives can either be constructive or de- destructive. Let's start with this example. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so... When uh, we were in Scotland, um, the very last night Mm -hmm. that I was visiting Sarah R., we got an email to a group of of friends Mm -hmm. um, from a friend of ours from graduate school who was on the faculty market this year and was successful on the faculty market and and got a job. And um, I saw that she wrote to us. I saw that it was a group email. And I didn't even click on it because I couldn't deal with it, my set of feelings about it. And in the morning, uh, Sarah R. said, did you read so-and-so's email? Yeah. You know, and I said, don't tell me about it. I, I can't even hear about it. And she told me about it anyway later. No, well, okay, you did on, though. No, but this is what happened. <laughs> Dear okay. listeners, this is what happened. <laughs> the real story is this. Sarah said, I, I don't think I can handle it right now. Yeah. And she didn't say, don't tell me about it. She said, I don't think I can handle it right now. I said, okay. Oh. And then two days later, no. I asked you, it was, it was two days later, I asked you, I said, so did you read the email? Oh, And okay. you were like, oh. no, I don't, and I don't think I ever will. And I said, well, oh. she got in here, or she has a faculty offer here. And you were yeah. like, I didn't want to know that. And I was like, oh. you're going to find out. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you will find out where she's a faculty off. And that was, I think, what tr- triggered this conversation, because I was surprised that, like, not even knowing, you know, you didn't even want to know where sh- she was going. Yeah. And to me, this was like open source information. This was out, you know, and yeah. it would be found at mm-hmm. some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had initially thought you just needed time, like to take the inflow of that information in at a time that, uh, like to read the email at a later date when you were feeling better about the situation mm-hmm. rather than never wanting to read it all. So I think that was the, the distinction in our responses there. Where for me it was, in this particular case, I had no problem reading the email. But that's not to say that I haven't felt jealousy or like a sense of like, oh, why didn't I get on that shortlist if so-and-so got on that shortlist? But normally it's also just more of like, a, oh, it makes sense that I didn't get on that shortlist because I didn't publish enough. <laughs> yes, okay, so like the links between jealousy, yeah, the links between jealousy and insecurity are there for sure. Yeah. Sarah R. probably falls on one part of the spectrum and I fall on another. I would say, like, what gets activated when I hear about friends, in particular around, like, faculty stuff right now. Well, because that's where we are. I'm sure it would be about something else. 
It's true for yeah. awards and stuff too, but like especially for faculty. And it seems to actually hit me hardest when it's things I didn't apply for. Yeah, which is interesting. Which is not necessarily all the time because yeah. I have felt it about things I've applied for too um, and not received. But it really rattles this set of feelings I have inside about how I'm even doing the faculty search mm-hmm. process. And I get so much uh, pressure, I would say, from my mentors to, to be doing it differently. Yeah. And so I think to myself, am I making a mistake? Kind of every time, yeah. especially if it's like friends and, and beloved friends, like getting mm-hmm. things. And I think to myself, what's wrong with me? And will I be left behind? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a profound feeling of anxiety, uh, insecurity. Like, uh, well, others will move on and achieve things in this life. I'm waving my hands around. Like, <laughs> we'll move on and achieve things in this life. Um, and it's really tied in with other stuff, too. Like, moving on. can with, of beans on the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> but not only professionally, like, personally. Like, mm-hmm. other people will move on and they'll just have great adventures. Romantic mm-hmm. adventures, professional adventures. And I'm going to be, like, an old slug. (laughs) (laughs) And I won't be, you know, it's like, uh, oh my gosh, there, it's like in Pride and Prejudice when Mr. Collins is like, it's unclear another offer of marriage will ever be made to you, (laughs) you know, and then I think to myself, like, maybe that was true for me. Not about marriage, about like faculty Faculty jobs, about faculty jobs, like it's unclear another faculty offer will ever be made made to you, (laughs) which is a major part of the advice I've received around faculty stuff. Sure. Well, and I think, I think the key distinction here though, is I really admire uh, Sarah B because of this. I would say... To me, looking at the situation, I think that you're more mindful in where you're applying and where you want your life to be. And because of that, you are making good decisions. And so I think there's a key distinction. There's a cup, there's some people, and this is a perfectly valid choice, who really just value being a faculty member and it doesn't matter where that is. And it could be that to them, the being a professor and doing research is, is no matter where that is, is, is going to be valuable. And for other people, different priorities are in their life. Maybe, maybe they have a two-body problem. Maybe, uh, maybe they have a location thing that they are uh, wanting to live in a certain type of location. Maybe they want to be near their family. Uh, maybe they want to be in a town that doesn't have three Walmarts, you know, whatever, whatever it's a throwback it is. to an old episode. <laughs> For our long-time <laughs> listeners, whatever, whatever it is, they're, they're making those choices based on that set of priorities. And a good piece of advice that a mentor gave me is it doesn't matter. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And she's like, you don't need a plan, you need priorities. And to me, I think a lot of people have a plan that's kind of just the next step of what they quote unquote should be doing and this pressure from your advisors and mentors and all this stuff. But really I think Sarah B has a set of priorities and she's, she's following through with those priorities and making decisions based off that. So that's how I view it. There's an unbiased outsider. (laughs) So unbiased. Yeah. (laughs) No, but I do. And so I think that, so then I can see how though you feel like when you see someone else get an offer at a place that you haven't applied for, that you would feel, well, did I? maybe I should have applied for everything. and But I think that that's not true, given the fact that you do have some priorities on where you live. That's true. I feel like it is at odds with maybe other priorities I have, like a major priorities just to like be a good friend, like be a decent friend. And there's some tension there because mm-hmm. it's like kind of withdrawing, like especially with me, my way of dealing with 
feelings of like anxiety, like professional anxiety is to really limit the amount of information Mm -hmm. that I'm receiving about it. Um, sometimes there's on balance, that's probably a good decision. Like when Sarah and I were first applying for postdocs, was it? Or maybe one of us was and the other wasn't yet. And it was like, we, we will bets. not be yeah. checking the yeah. rumor mill. Yeah. And that was like a major thing where it was like mindfully controlling the inflow yeah. of information and noise and static like around faculty mm-hmm. stuff to manage the anxiety mm-hmm. and uncertainty with it. To a certain extent, that's good. I think it's not necessarily so good when it's like a beloved friend with like a yeah. email with a major life update and... Yeah. I was probably a little ashamed about it, and I probably wouldn't have even told very many people that I hadn't read it. Yeah. I would just be like, oh, yeah, I read it. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, yeah. and pretend like I had, but with you, I was like, I just straight up didn't. Yeah. Well, you know, we've heard some of the worst aspects of ourselves, <laughs> which is why we're friends. <laughs> but yeah. I think it, this reminds me of the fact that there's things that I have to also limit the flow of my information on. And if I don't, I get really anxious and it sets off a, like the only true panic attack I've had in my life was from kind of just uncontrollably Googling negative information. Mm -hmm. And what I've since done, because I still do need to sometimes engage with that uh, information, I have a system where I only engage with it once a week. And so I batch it. So that might be one strategy to, Mm -hmm. to give it a go is like batch all your reading of these emails from friends or whatever, like once a week, once a month, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And you're like on Monday, whatever, or or the first of the month or whatever it is, I'm going to read all of those things that I do care about these people and I want to give a thoughtful response. Yeah. But I find it easier to just kind of, it's not coming at me whenever I deal with it. I have a Google alert about it, Mm -hmm. and I get it in a batch email set to once a week. And Mm -hmm. then when I get that, I deal with it. And I've kind of, that's been very, a very good method for me. It doesn't get out of control that way. Mm -hmm. I can, it's like limited in time to like a half an hour once a week. And then I don't get this on flood of anxiety. And I can also control it. If that day of the week is not good, I can just push it off. But like, it's a way to both limit the flow. So you're not just getting whatever information about people's successes whenever mm-hmm. um, but you're taking you're still taking it in and during that time when you're at a higher emotional energy mm-hmm. uh, giving the time to respond I think for me it is yeah it is important to to try to it's hard you know when we're when we're jealous of someone's success but I think especially with friends it's it's important to also just try to take them on the I'm so excited for that person too yeah you know and try to divorce that from our own accomplishments, which we know logically we should do, but is very much harder emotionally to do. Yeah, it is. My favorite imposter thought by Sarah B. recently, which I do have to share for our audiences. <laughs> oh my god, I can't even remember what's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> is she said to me? She said, <laughs> "Even if my, <laughs> you know I where I'm going. My- yeah, you know where I'm going. Even if my CV." had yeah. won the Nobel Prize on it, Yes, I still would not think that I'm good enough because I don't have enough publications. <laughs> that was a thought experiment I played with myself. I believe that my CV has the properties of a black hole. It doesn't matter how much kind of accretes onto it. Even a Nobel Prize. <laughs> and I was like, what if it was 
a straight up Nobel Prize that was on it, would I then would I feel like pretty good about it? And I was like, no, no. that much is clear because I would still be so ashamed of my publication record. Yes. And that's what I love about this. So it is, it's just rampant. So, which is it, it definitely my own stuff. I feel like another way that it's just like kind of the extreme end of feelings that I kind of do like about myself, you know, like I do want to have good relationships with people and so on. I just, I feel like, um, part of that is I really admire other women, like in particular, Mm -hmm. that's a major tool that I've used like over the years because I don't like the way culturally we're often pitted against one another Mm -hmm. as women as though we can't support one another. Mm -hmm. And I really, I don't like that. And so I try to be very, uh, supportive of other women and to maybe to a fault in this situation because I'm no longer really being supportive of myself, you know, where I think like, of course, other women are achieving things. Other women are so smart and they're like so cool. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good tool sometimes because if I have a real lack of empathy for myself or something that's happened to me, I'll imagine that what um, has happened to me has actually happened to like a, a friend and then I'll often discover a reserve of empathy that I don't have for myself I'll think like oh if this happened to my friend of course I would think like well she deserves only the best like mm-hmm. she deserves to be treated fairly and then I'll see myself through kind of a fresh lens and, and I'll think I too am deserving of good of fair treatment and so on I think in like this particular case it's almost like a despair, you know, where I'm just like, of course, like other women achieve so many things, like they're so great and I'm not. Mm-hmm. So it's like a very particular thing happening with like gender too. Where and imposter syndrome, it's like all yeah. together. It's yeah. Anxiety, it's like, imposter syndrome, gender. It's like values imposter syndrome too, because I'm like, well, maybe all my decisions are bad. Yeah. Where like where I'm deciding how I'm like shaping my decisions about like how to make professional choices. Maybe that's all like a bad decision-making and so on. It's like, you know, imposter thoughts about... Yeah, well, imposter thoughts are not limited to academia. I have them (laughs) in all sorts of areas. It's really weird how... What I find so surprising, because my husband laughs when I say I have the imposter syndrome, because I'm confident in some things. You know, I'm very confident in some things. Yeah. And then I'm so not confident in other things. And academia is one. Also, mountaineering is one. I get imposter thoughts of mountaineering. Oh, yeah! mountaineering but I'm not I don't have the imposter syndrome when it comes to like dance or writing or so so it's like there's some things I'm very confident in but some things I'm not yeah so then when I get like a criticism about say writing I don't take it personally and I don't feel like my whole self-image of myself as a writer deflates but imposter syndrome does it's not just linked to academia but where I was going this was more I think it's reasonable I would say it's a reasonable response you're having this questioning of values because not only is the whole of academia telling you that the only thing worthwhile to do with a PhD in astrophysics is to become a professor in astrophysics. That mm-hmm. is the message that is unfortunately, I think, given from the set of grad school. And, and they even ask you. And I mean, they do nod that not everyone's going to get one, but that's almost seen like a sad thing. Oh, they're leaving academia, right? Mm-hmm. So that's like just... Like a straight up... Or, yeah. In part, yeah. It's, it's straight up like not not validated, I would say, by the field as a whole. And then for you in particular, your direct mentors have also made direct statements saying that they don't think you're making good choices. Yeah. Using those exact words. Yeah. And and so no wonder that you're questioning that. Mm-hmm. I would say that is really not surprising at all. Mm-hmm. 
but it doesn't make it true. And and I really like that story you shared about Sarah Seeger mm-hmm. and that radio interview she did where where her friends basically just said, we trust that you're, you're going to make good choices. So whatever it is that you're oh. going to decide, remember that? No. Well, uh, I've been forgetting all things that I that I give much advice on. It was or very like wise. Wisdom. They fall out of my head. And so later when friends are like, oh, you gave me this advice. I'm like, I guess it sounds good. <laughs> I'm glad I did it. For some reason, I have not been able to keep that stuff in my head. Well, I don't remember the particulars of the story. Maybe you will, but... Sarah Seeger gave a little five-minute radio interview, and one of the stories she told was about how she was despairing about something and didn't know if she was going to make the right decision, and then her widow's group came to her all in her office, and she was worried that they would say, yeah, you're not making the right decision, but instead they came and they said, you know what, we trust you to make the right decision. We know that you make good decisions, and we're and, and because we know you, we know that you're going to be thoughtful about this. And I would say of all the people I know in the world, Sarah B., you're very thoughtful. You know, And I trust that you're making probably a way more mindful and thoughtful decision than most people, let alone academics. So I think that it's not surprising to me that that triggers these thoughts because you have it not only from the community, but also from your direct mentors. But I still think you're making wise decisions. But that does lead into this jealousy thing of then wondering, am I doing the right thing? Am I not, you know, should I have applied for that? Yeah. Am I not where I should be at this stage in my career? So I remember uh, contributing to a piece. In fact, I wrote this piece anonymously. It was called, like, Confessions of a Woman on the Faculty Job Market or something. Gosh, I had forgotten about that. And, like, as part of writing that piece, I had looked up some sociology literature like around in particular periods of time like in women's life and when anxiety was ebbing and flowing Mm -hmm. like with respect to life decisions so there's like a major peak like mid to late 20s Mm -hmm. um, which is coincident I think with a lot of career decisions Mm -hmm. into like the early 30s and it wasn't just professional decisions it was like decisions about like relationship choices too Uh, like profound anxiety about those things and profound anxiety about whether or not to become parents Mm -hmm. uh, and so on. Whereas, okay, so take the other extreme. A lot of the women who are in their 50s who were asked things about that, they didn't feel those anxieties anymore. They felt like with the decisions that they made a lot of the time, they felt like they were good decisions. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't like this sort of acute anxiety, which seems to like peak at this period of time coincident with a lot of professional decisions. And that is really true. Like, it like all sort of blurs together where I think that other women in particular seem to be making good decisions. And at the end of the day, what if they all move on Mm -hmm. and I'm alone? And so it's really just like a, it's not only insecurity, it's like loneliness or something. Mm -hmm. Like my friends will move on and experience what it's like to be professors. And what if I never do? I mean, and that's been said explicitly to me by my mentors, like, you know, well, what if you're never a professor? What then? Mm-hmm. And what I responded at the time was like, well, then I'll just do something else. But the truth is, I wouldn't feel anxiety or jealousy around it if it didn't matter a lot to me. If yeah. It wasn't something I was really interested in doing. Yeah. It does still suck, though. And like most things, you know, if I confess them to Sarah R., she's like, well, maybe you should do it differently. <laughs> Maybe you should actually read the emails of your friends. Read, read the emails. I, I did judge you for not reading that email. But. I didn't even read it. Yeah, because I will be like a like a little animal and I will go and hide in my hidey hole. 
<laughs> well, now you've admitted this email story to the world, so I it's have. not just Sarah R. But I, I do think, though, so these women, right? Okay, so let's look at this study you mentioned. Because these women in their 50s, not all of them probably made decisions and things turned out the way they exactly thought and wanted. But they're still happy looking back on it. So I think some of the anxiety now is just that it's unknown. The future is unknown. And when the future is unknown, it causes a lot more anxiety. Because once the decision's removed from you, say you get a faculty offer at a place you like, great, that's one choice. Say you don't. Say, and then you leave and you do data science in Seattle mm -hmm. or something, mm -hmm. right? Once that decision's made, then like we adapt to that new normal pretty quick. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like the reason why the anxiety is so high right now is that, yeah, a lot of women in our age category don't necessarily know about our long-term future relationships, mm -hmm. don't know about, you know, our career choices, like you mentioned, having children or not. Mm -hmm. These are huge life things that are unknown, as well a lot of more physical diseases start happening yeah. in our 30s. Our parents might start be getting older. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot of things that are happening that are major life stressors. And once those are resolved, I feel like we're really resilient as humans, by and large, to adapting to new circumstances. But until those new circumstances happen, it can be really the unknown is more scary than the actual reality of any of these situations. Yeah. Plus, I really think you're going to be a professor. I mean, I just zero doubt in my mind. You know, you were like second on several shortlists and you're shortlisted all the time. So, I mean, to me, this is like ridiculous. It's kind of like Einstein being like, well, I don't know. Maybe my work won't be appreciated in the future. It's like, yes, of course it will. Oh, um, it's like Einstein. It's like it? Einstein. No, oh, that sounds I, objective. I am objective. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do, I do think that you are going to get that. I, and I think you're waiting a job cycle or two is going to pay off and that you're going to get a good place. Furthermore, I'm pretty sure that if you want to change that strategy at some point, then you could apply everywhere and get something. That's another, you know, it might be in a town with three Walmarts, <laughs> but you can do it. <laughs> oh yeah, that was mm, mm, mm. a strong memory. I feel like I, you're often right too when you ask me to engage with things I don't want to engage with. Like that can be people sometimes, you know, and I'll find I actually really like the person or whatever. Or um, more recently, like with a colleague at MIT, I thought that this guy, I was just, I had some jealousy like around him being on shortlist I wanted to be on. And um, I had never really interacted with him very much, like except at one like postdoc happy hour or something. And he had said some like remark about reverse sexism and I've, I really put him in this category. And yet, despite maybe not liking him all that much with that first impression, I still felt envious of him being on the shortlist that I wasn't on. And I found it really hard to even like look at the poster, like, you know, in the hallway about his like interview talk. Then one morning it was time for like group meeting and I was like wandering down the hallway, like to our meeting room. And it turned out that meeting, the meeting had been canceled and I hadn't realized it, but I ran into this postdoc, this guy, and he was like, oh, the meeting got canceled, but if you want to come sit in here like for a little while, like that would be, that would be okay, you know, before you head back. And, and we just started um, talking to one another and I realized that I really liked him. Mm -hmm. And he actually said some things that were so, so kind to me. 
because he started saying like, how did you get into exoplanets? And I started saying, oh, it was Dave Charbonneau or whatever I got. And he was like, no, I mean like, how did you end up in science? Like, I feel like you have this kind of set of skills, which would also equip you to be like a therapist or something, or maybe you would be an artist or whatever. And, um, and that was a lovely thing to say. I thought for me, that was like a really lovely thing to say. And I was wrong about that. So like my urge around like jealousy and insecurity to kind of just withdraw. I'm very anxious too about like hurting others. Like I wouldn't want to respond like with out of anger, you Mm -hmm. know, or out of insecurity and show a friend that and like hurt a precious friend. Like, because I'm not thinking very clearly those situations and the more recent one where you were like, you really should meet this person. And I really liked her. That was kind of a reminder to me too, that other people's stories are complicated. I really make them, hyper simplified in my mind when I have these jealous thoughts I Mm -hmm. think well she's just gonna succeed and like she's Mm -hmm. doing great and that makes me feel like about two inches tall but the truth is that other people are more complicated than I often allow yeah I think also in my own life I've seen this a lot with finding out about some pretty severe things going on in other people's life that I'm not aware of like whether it be a relational thing or something and if they open up about it and you're just like, well, but everything seemed fine on the surface. Mm-hmm. And this has happened to me like with three or four people in the last year where they seem so well put together, but things are near breaking. And just knowing that like, we're all kind of walking around fooling each other at some level, right? Like we all, we see the inside and our insecurities and somehow we think that means that Especially, I guess, in this age of Facebook where we have this curated profile that we're releasing to the world. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of our silent stalking of friends and stuff is this very curated image (laughs) of what that person is like. But we don't see the heartache or the the difficulty with their uh, partner or their family or their health or their job. You know, there's so many things that could be going on in life or their gender identity or sexuality. I mean, whatever, you know, yeah. all the all the things that make up a life and we don't see it. I remember I was on this trip with someone and I met this guy and he just was seemed so great and he was so supportive. His his dad had Parkinson's and he was running a Parkinson's foundation and he was just doing all this awesome stuff. And then, like, a year later, I read something he wrote about that experience, that he was an alcoholic and was severely going through some problems at that time of Mm. that experience of when I met him, and that he was getting sober, and but things were collapsing around him and all this stuff. And again, it just kind of, a lot of us talked about it, and we're like, wow, we have no idea. And I think this is true for a lot of things in life. You know, we see the the job offer, but we don't see all the rejections that person got or all the difficulties they might have going on in their life. So I think it's, it's important for us to humanize people as best we can. And I think the best we can is to talk to them. Even if we vehemently disagree with someone, just talking to them humanizes it more because we realize most people want the same things we do. You know, they want good things for their families, good things for themselves, their job their life and I think making those communications is what is what allows us to do that because when they remain 2d people we don't see them in their complexities and in their human Mm -hmm. humanness 
yeah, and there's kind of a cartoonishness that happens, I would say, when I am feeling, like, jealous of other people. It's like, they're just the picture of success, mm-hmm. whereas I'm the picture of failure. And, of course, that's not true. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're a complicated portrait, and I'm a complicated portrait. But it is very easy to oversimplify, to tell myself some story, like, even if it's really painful. Yeah, and it's not helpful to that person. It's not fair to that person. It's not fair to you, you know, and it doesn't help the situation, right? So I think... No, oh, but I love my hidey hole. <laughs> so Going back to the me. happiness advantage, which I mentioned before, <laughs> like, in periods of social stress, it's best to reach out to social social connection. Not necessarily to people that you don't like, right. I mean, but to your friends. <laughs> right. um, and, and to regain that emotional robustness fill up your bucket of of emotional reserve so to speak and then and i would batch it yeah deal with deal with the, the just put it into all a google folder yeah called google like folder. friends who achieve things <laughs> that i'm not achieving i'm not achieving <laughs> read it once a week um you know yeah. and and move on and then because it's manageable that way i will say that really helped me like dealing it with it like in a time that i knew would happen and i knew it would be limited yeah yeah. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> As always, Sarah R. comes through with um, with various resources to help me in my time of need. I well, believe. you've yeah. done the same. Sarah, Sarah B. says amazingly wise things that she then forgets a week later. I could totally Constantly. claim it. I could co- claim it as my own. I hope you do. Instead, I, instead I give her credit. And she's like, oh, I said that? That sounds smart. <laughs> I agree with past Sarah. I just immediately forget. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're wise. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's like a moment-to-moment improv. You know, uh, I'm glad that it has helped you, too, it Sarah. Has. It has helped me. Yeah. Let's go ahead and be grateful, I think, that we recorded a new episode. Maybe it's the start of a new season. We'll see, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) season two of Self-Care with Dr. Sarah. But to that end, you can find us on Twitter, although we haven't been tweeting very much. Um, We are Doctors Sarah Care, and uh, we are also on Tumblr at drsarahcare.tumblr.com. That's actually where we keep all of the links that we include in every episode, as well there's like some commentary and such. So any of the resources that we talked about in this particular episode, articles and books and mm-hmm. so on, you'll find um, on our Tumblr as well. Thank you very much for listening. I'm uh, Sarah B. And I'm Sarah R. And thank you again, listeners, for, for joining us with Self-Care with Dr. Sarah.